All right, well, we are going to have one more little, uh, I guess, lesson on this, I, I, mean, I don't know what to call it, a mini-series, it's just two lessons, um, that I entitled Before Bethlehem. We started this a couple of weeks ago. We, we settled in on the passage in Luke, Luke chapter 1, and really we went through verses 1 through 17 in that great account of the appearance of the angel in the temple to Zechariah. Zacharias and uh, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and that whole scene there, we kind of looked at that very briefly. Um, but really what we focused in on last time is this, this question really of what do we do when God seems silent? And we drew that question out from the context of this passage in Luke where This is the breaking through of that silence where after 400 years of no prophet amongst God's people, the 400 silent years as they're called, since Malachi, you have the word of the Lord coming to Zacharias in the temple announcing the birth of John who will be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so we talked about this whole uh, question, what do we do when God seems silent? And how do we respond? We looked at some characteristics of of Zacharias and Elizabeth in this text and how they're characterized there as righteous and faithful, just steadily faithful. Um, We talked about how we are to recount the goodness and kindness and works of the Lord, even even at times where we feel distant from God and we feel like that God is silent. And then, of course, we use sort of some historical reference points that characterize the, the time in between uh, the prophet Malachi and the coming of the New Testament uh, era and the, the speaking of God most, most clearly through His Son in the New Testament time by looking at how God was moving in history, how God was providentially working and moving throughout that period of time in some very distinct ways, even in preparation for this significant portion of redemptive history and God's sovereign redemptive plan that we see unfolding um, here in Luke chapter 1, and how God was really setting the stage, setting the table in some key ways, some very practical ways, um, through the various um, epics of, of leadership and sovereign rule in the land of Israel. And we concluded our time by just referencing Colossians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, but set, that says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we just acknowledge and recognize that God is never silent. God is never still. He's never not working or moving or accomplishing His good purpose, um, even though it might seem that way to us. And even in light of this Advent season and looking at this Advent passage in Luke chapter 1, we see how God was at work, and he brought about the coming of John, the forerunner of Christ, and the coming of Messiah when it was time, in the fullness of time, at the appropriate time, according to his timetable and his purpose. And he was setting all that up. So we we dealt with this issue uh, briefly of when God is silent, this question of what do we do when God is silent, how should we respond when God is silent, and really probed a little bit more deeply to to make the, the, the confirmation that is God really ever silent? And the answer to that is obviously no, um, not, in the, not in the most transcendent sense. 
The, today I want to look a little bit uh, from a different angle in the same passage. And let's just talk about when God steps into history. When, when God steps in to human history. Obviously God is over history. God is providentially and sovereignly in control of all the affairs of man. And he knows the end from the beginning and he is at work in and through all events throughout time and history, accomplishing his good will and his good purposes um, according to his plan. But obviously, God also steps into history in unique and profound ways. And of course, when we see this, this uh, New Testament, New Covenant era and the coming of Christ, uh, we see this in a profound way. And what I think is, I, I guess, as I, as I looked at this and I thought about this, I, I was just struck by how this is typically characterized when these kinds of things happen, um, when these, these historical periods have unfolded for us. And, and what you see, and this is what I want us to kind of unpack a little bit today, and we're just going to do it by, by walking through uh, this passage and highlighting some of these observations. But what you see is you see this stunning convergence of what you might just call the utterly and completely common with what, and again, I'm, I, I struggled with coming up with the right terms, and I don't even think that this captures it effectively, but this convergence of what is utterly common with this understated miraculous, it's, which seems contradictory. How do you understate the miraculous? Really, we need to maybe put a fine point on on the idea or the concept of miracle, we're talking about God intervening supernaturally into history, into time and space, and accomplishing or doing something that cannot be explained in any other way other than in supernatural terms. So we're not talking about uh, um, God's providential work, things that could be explained naturally, but you know that God is sovereignly at work over uh, the natural universe, natural universe and the natural course of, of history. But we're talking about God intervening in ways that are utterly and completely divine and miraculous and cannot be explained any other way. I mean, the incarnation would be like the preeminent example. You, you can't explain that, or the virgin birth, I should say, more, more specifically. You can't explain that through any other means other than an act of, of a miracle work of God. But when you see this described, and I think that this is really important... Um, to recognize, especially when you look at Luke and his recounting of these events, is there, is there are these descriptions of God stepping in and stepping in in really dramatic fashion and in a time and a context that would be dramatic just because of the season and time that you're in. If you, if you have 400 silent years and then God breaks the silence, that's pretty dramatic. But the way that it's described and recounted or the scene that gets painted for us is relatively understated in nature. It's kind of matter of fact, which really goes to the sort of the apologetic nature, particularly of Luke's gospel. I mean, if you can imagine um, this, this approach to 17 justifications and rationalizations of why you should believe what I'm about to tell you. Because what I'm about to tell you is really crazy and you shouldn't believe it under normal terms, but I'm going to preface everything I'm going to tell you by telling you, I know this sounds crazy and I know this sounds amazing, but you've got to believe it. No, there's none of that. 
It's all just direct and matter of fact, and even to a certain extent kind of understated, and yet it's an understatement of what is completely stunning. I mean, utterly and completely stunning from a historical perspective, from a religious perspective, from a theological perspective, from a supernatural perspective. It's just utterly and completely stunning. It's so compelling when you, when you step back and you start to observe how this unfolds and how uh, and, and maybe why some of this is, is recorded in the way that it is. So you see this convergence of this utterly common with this understated miraculous. And then you also see this persistent demonstration of God's patience and faithfulness. And it's persistent. I mean, I use the term persistence intentionally. It's persistent even in the, faith, even in the face of a, a, a weakness of faith on the part of God's people. It's, it, it remains persistent, his demonstration of patience and faithfulness in the midst of that when he steps into history in these profound ways. Let's just read uh, the, this section of Luke chapter 1, get this setting in our minds, and then we'll, we'll carry on from there. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And here he goes. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many from their children, many of the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We'll stop there for a moment. So here you have this this scene, and it has all the elements of what you would consider common activity. Um, it, is, it is common in the sense that you have this priest, and, and he's a relatively indescript priest. Another translation says a certain priest, a certain priest named Zechariah. So just nothing unusual, nothing spectacular in the, in the record here about him. And his wife, a daughter of Aaron, Elizabeth, a daughter of a priestly family, 
So aware of all the rituals and practices and responsibilities of being a priest in Israel. Uh, it says they were righteous before God. That is a distinction there. They, they stood before God righteous. They, they understood their sin. They understood their dependence upon God to, to forgive. And they stood before him righteous. They, they worked out that righteousness by walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. So again, not only indescript in terms of a certain priest and his wife, um, but they had no child, so there was an element there of, of scorn, of social scorn that they had to live with. And it says that they were advanced in years, so this is something that they had been living with for a long time. Um, and you have reference down in, further down in the account that this was a particular burden for them. Uh, obviously, we know that from uh, the time that they were living in and how not having a child, in particular not having a son, uh, was often viewed as some, something of a curse, that, that there was, there was some, some sin that they were paying the price for, if you will. There was something that uh, God was not um, inclined to bless them with children for. And so there was this, even in spite of this description of their righteousness and their faithfulness and their obedience, uh, they were living in a, in a, a, a social climate, in a cultural climate, in a religious climate, that would not so much view them this way, but would view them as, as those who had not been blessed by God with the benediction of children, of offspring, and how that could be some form of God punishing them or cursing them. Which would put them into a category of any other couple, any other married couple who would be in that same predicament, if you will. They had no child, and while they were serving... And this is where you get into the service of his, his office. You have, and Luke just, uh, he, he uses very common terms to describe what's going on here. He was serving as a priest when his division was on duty. It was just his division's time to serve at temple. There were 24 orders in the priesthood. He was in the order of Abijah, and it was his order's time. They would serve uh, two weeks out of the year, uh, that was it. And once your time was up, you, you were no longer serving at temple for that period of time. But it was just that, that time for the, for the order of Abijah to be serving. And so Zechariah, along with his order, just like normal course, it was time and he was serving. Now here's where it gets a little bit uh, unique for him. And I say a little bit unique, it's actually quite dramatic. It's not written as such, but... You see here where uh, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, that's again, the way Luke states this, it's just so nondescript. It's so just sort of matter of fact. But in fact, this would be a very, very dramatic occasion for any priest to be chosen by lot to be able to go and burn incense. Because this, this did not happen unless you were chosen by lot to do this. And once it happened, it would never happen again. And this was the opportunity for a priest, not the high priest, but a priest, to enter into the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the closest place to the holy of holies. So in terms of the life of a priest, this was a big, big, big deal for him to be able to go in and perform this service of worship and burn, burn incense in the temple. 
And so you have this, this sacred process that he would undertake, taking some coals into some type of gold bowl and, and, and off, off the, uh, the brazen altar and walking them into the holy place and, and spreading them with some utensils of some sort and allowing the incense and the smoke to waft out and it's representative of the prayers of God's people going up, prayers of, of confession and repentance, appeals to God for forgiveness. And so he's chosen to walk into, and by the way, the priests did not get to go into this place unless they were chosen for this particular duty. So this was a, this was a, a big, big deal for him. Very understated here, but it was certainly a dramatic moment, a, a significant moment for him as a priest. And then he goes into the temple, excuse me, into the holy place to burn incense. And what happens? An angel appears. Now again, it just says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Just in case you're wondering, I'm going to give you the location of where the angel appeared. There's, there's people that would, you know, that would try to infuse some type of symbolic meaning into where the angel appeared, standing on the right, and infuse some type of symbol, you know, theological significance. But it's probably more aptly stated that Luke is just trying to be precise historically and say, this is, this is what happened. Like, if you're wondering where the angel showed up, it was to the right of the altar of incense. But even still, it's, it's very understated. We're talking about an angel of the Lord. Now, what do we find out later in the count? Which angel is this? Gabriel, Gabriel right? So an archangel appears. Now, so you have this very understated description of the angel appearing. And, of course, you see Zechariah's response, which is utter and complete fear. Um, he is, it says he's troubled and fear fell upon him. And, of course, as we know throughout Scripture, that's a very common reaction uh, to being um, approached or confronted by an angel or the presence of God himself. I mean, you can hearken back to probably one of the more vivid accounts in Isaiah, when Isaiah is worshiping in the temple and it says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and it filled with smoke, and I saw the angels, and they were singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. I mean, it was just, the, and, he, and, he, and he says, I fell as though dead. You have John before he receives the revelation of Christ on the Isle of Patmos, and he falls as though dead into a coma-like state. You have the disciples who, who get the blessing of seeing Christ transfigured, sort of the veil of humanity pulled back. You see his holiness, and what happens to them? They fall dead. So this is a, a very common experience for those who find themselves in the presence of heavenly glory, heavenly holiness. So you have this archangel, Gabriel, who appears at the right of the altar of incense, and he had stepped out of heaven and out of the very presence of God, most likely, and into this human space, this physical space, where? To the right of the altar of incense. That's where. Really compelling in description. And it says the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So this is probably the evening time. There was a morning, uh, 
uh, all, all, um, sacrifice and burning of incense, and there was an evening. This was probably the evening time because there was typically a larger crowd, so this is likely an evening event. So it was probably a lot of people, in other words, at this time. So angels, uh, Zechariah is terrified, he's afraid. But then, of course, the angel provides this common response when uh, there is a, a, it's a message of hope and peace and grace uh, and, and the blessing of God that's, that's on the horizon. And it's, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So the silence is broken, and you have the, the foretelling of the coming of the next prophet, the prophet John. He'll be great. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And here's what he will do. He will turn away the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord, for the Lord, the people prepared. Now, when you look at this, you basically see John as having this prophetic, evangelistic type of ministry that's being foretold here. And, and, and really, that is a description of what he will do in addition to being the forerunner of the Messiah, the, the, the Messiah and preparing the way. But when you look at what was really going on, you look at the sort of the religious and cultural influences of that time, it, it makes that kind of ministry, I think, more, more poignant in nature. Um, who, who knows who were sort of the, the religious and cultural influencers at this time in Israel? Some names. You've heard them in the New Testament. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests. What, what are some others? What is that? Oh, like the zealots. Okay, different. Yeah, the zealots. The zealots. Uh, you have the Essenes. We talked about the Essenes. Um, they're not mentioned in Scripture directly. There's some um, implications that they're referred to in different places, but um, the Essenes. So let's talk about them for a little bit so you can kind of understand this, this cultural and religious dynamic that's going on here that John is going to be stepping into to turn people's hearts back to God. So we'll talk about the Sadducees for a moment. Um, the Sadducees, who knows a little bit about the Sadducees? You probably do. I mean, if you're going to throw out a name like that, you've got to know about the Sadducees. Well, they're, they're the secular ones, basically. They, they controlled most of the, of the government there. Uh, they denied anything uh, supernatural. They just basically used the trappings of Judaism to wield power over the people of Israel. Yeah, so, so that's a, a key identifier. Let me, let me kind of uh, add a little bit to that. It's a good description. Obviously, um, definitely the they were the aristocrats, the ruling class. Um, wealthy tended to be wealthy, held powers of position, um, including that of the chief priest and the high priest. They held a majority of the seventy seats on the ruling council, the San- Sanhedrin. Um, they worked really hard to keep the peace with Rome. So therein lies some of the, the compromise that would come into play regarding. Uh, um, religious conviction. They also made an awful lot of money. They, on, on sacrifices, when people would bring their sacrifices there, they'd be the ones to determine if they were acceptable or not acceptable. If you bought them from them, then they were acceptable. Even though 
they might not, according to Hoyle, be you know acceptable. And also, they were you know did random money changing. Quite an imp quite an enterprise, quite a, quite a lucrative enterprise that they were running. Again, this is all though against a backdrop of 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 religious theocracy of of religious Israel. Okay, so just think about that. And even, you can even translate that into our current time and start thinking about some of the, the, the um, images of that that we have here. Um, they, they were extremely self-sufficient. They, they would deny God's involvement in everyday life. So it was more about you know, man's involvement, man's sovereignty over his destiny. They denied any resurrection from the dead. They denied any afterlife. Uh, they denied the existence of a spiritual world, angels, demons, and so forth. So, I mean, you start talking about angels appearing, you start providing this kind of, of witness to the work of God, and there's going to be some, uh, some problems there. Interestingly enough, though, um, they, did, they did hold to the written Torah as authoritative, and and they did not hold to the oral tradition as being authoritative, which is in contrast to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were more like, and this, is, this might be, uh, seem a little bit surprising, but they were more the common man's uh, 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 authority or influence. They, 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 uh, they were sort of like the middle class business leaders and religious influencers and societal influencers. Um, they were they were held in higher esteem by the people than than the Sadducees were. Um, so they were the they were the influencers amongst the common hoi polloi of Israel. They though they like I said they gave equal authority to the oral traditions and the written word of God the written law. And so you have all these you know Jesus confronts this over and over again right in his ministry where there's just all this added on rules and regulations and governing principles and practices, uh, washings, and just on and on it goes, where they added to the law and they added to it as part of oral tradition and they gave, they gave the same authority or the same weight of authority to that as the written word of God. They were more um, conservative in some ways theologically. They believed that God controlled all things um, Yet the decisions made by individuals also contributed to the course of a person's life. They did believe in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in an afterlife. They did believe in the existence of angels and demons. So they had some, some theological contradiction with them. So this is an interesting mix, right? You have the Sadducees, who were the aristocratic branch, um, and they, they did not believe that the oral tradition had any weight or authority, yet they also believed that man was more autonomous in nature than, than God being actively involved in the affairs of men. So, you know, the Torah would be more about what God had done in the past, not so much what he's doing now, and yet it was still authoritative for law and for, for oversight and for ruling. Whereas the Pharisees had more uh, conservative convictions about things like God being in control of, of the affairs of man and the resurrection from the dead and the afterlife and angels and demons and so forth. But they also added to the Word of God with their traditions. So it's an interesting mix, uh, kind of a confusing mix in some ways. I just heard a John MacArthur sermon about it, and he was also saying that the Pharisees um, were 
more patriotic, which is why other people were more like them more because they weren't as interested in in um, pleasing Rome. Cozying up to Rome. And, mm -hmm. and that they also think the Pharisees came from a very holy, pious group during the Maccabean period. Um, so it started out where they were really focused on being holy and pleasing the Lord, but then it had mm. developed into where they had just added on to it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The, the Pharisees were the, were the great moralizers. They were the moral majority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you had the zealots, it was already mentioned, and who knows what the zealots are? Just They're the revolutionaries, right? So, so think of the, think of those who want to take over. In their minds, theocracy meant meant actual battle to win. There was there was a, a, a militaristic, um, even at times they were they were terroristic in their you know sometimes accused of a terroristic kind of approach, a, a militancy there. That's right. They think that Judas Iscariot may be a reference to him being of that group. That's right. I, that, that, was, that name was ringing a bell, but I couldn't remember what it was. Got it. So it was a political movement. Um, they wanted to take over the Roman government. So you had the ruling class that was wanting to cozy up and appease the Roman government and, and kind of hold on to their position of power and influence and wealth and their money-making enterprise. You had the, the Pharisees, who were the moral overlords of the people, but also more popular amongst the people. Uh, you have the zealots, who are, they're wanting to take over by force, whatever it takes. This is our right, and they want to they take over. They want to take over the Roman Empire by force. And they're in the mix. Um, you have the Essenes, who are more of a mystical uh, group. Um, they were kind of separatists, so they wanted to sort of separate themselves, kind of a monastic monk kind of, of idea. Uh, they wanted to separate from, from this, this degraded and compromised religious system, um, and they, but they had some, some beliefs that were uh, excessively mystical in nature. You had the Herodians in the mix. The Herodians, were uh, they had political power. Um, they were a political party that supported Herod, uh, Antipas, and the Roman Empire's rule. They were, they were, they were affiliated as well, similar to the Sadducees. Um, they favored submitting to the Herods, though. This is more specific to the ruler, the Herods that ruled over Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire. And... Uh, <coughs> So they, they were anathema, basically, to, to faithful, you know, loyal, patriotic Israelites, the Herodians were. So you have all this going on. You have all these different groups and factions under this umbrella of the chosen people of God or, or the people of Israel or however you want to sort of characterize that and, and, and under Roman occupation and under Roman rule. And John... Here's the message. Here's what John's going to do. He is going to turn people's hearts back to God. He's going to step in to this kind of mix, conflicting, at odds, power struggles, self-sufficiency, desire for control, 
motivated by violent takeover, he's going to step into that world and have this, this evangelistic, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand kind of ministry. So it's very understated in its initial statement, but this is a major, major task that will befall him. As I thought about this, and I was kind of you know, thinking about the, the, the religious and cultural context that this ministry would, would take place within, and of course extending into the time of Christ as well in his ministry too, but I couldn't help but think of, of um, God speaking to Moses and calling Moses. In fact, turn to Exodus chapter 3 and let's look at that real quick and just kind of think about this, this convergence of what is utterly, utterly common, what is, what is tangible, what is like descriptive of real life in real time, this convergence of that with this understated, miraculous divine intervention into human history. Exodus chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now Moses, if you're wondering what he was doing, he was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. That's what he was doing. He was keeping the flock. Moses was just tending sheep, is what he was doing at this particular time. His father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. Pretty stunning, right? He just moved them from one place to the other, these sheep. And, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him, called him, called to him out of the bush, excuse me, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Once again, similar response. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Okay, the man is tending sheep on a hillside and he's moving them from one place to the next and this conversation begins to happen and here's what he's saying you're going to go do. This is your next assignment. I will send you to Pharaoh. Okay, a little, a little alarming. However, there's more. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That's it? Okay, got it. Check. No big deal, right? Can you imagine? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? A fair question, I think. 
He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, isn't this interesting? Moses expresses concern about this mission and how it's going to come off with the people of Israel more than he expresses concern about having to go to the Pharaoh of Israel to say, let them go. That's a stunning thing there. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this, I think, captures why you have this what seems like this understated miraculous in, in God's intervention into common human history. It's because that God is not stunned by His own omnipotent power, by His own omniscience and rulership over history. He describes Himself as, I am. Just tell him I am sent you. This, I've got this. You've got to trust me. This is not going to be a problem for me. And so when you see this unfolding in the coming of Christ, in this Advent passage of the foretelling of the birth of John, which, which preempts the coming of Christ and the, the, the vision of the angel to, to Mary, to tell her of the child that she will bear, that will be born of God. And in all this unfolding story, you have this, this understated description, this, this convergence of just common life and common people and God stepping in, but it's not, con- it's not described in terms like, you're not going to believe this. This is going to really blow you away, people. Get ready for this. It represents the very character and nature of God as sovereign, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Nothing surprises him. Nothing throws him off his game. Nothing concerns him. He's not worried about tomorrow. He's not worried about how Pharaoh's going to respond. He's not worried about how the people... It's totally given us this perspective or a glimpse into this perspective of the eternal sovereign power and nature and character of the God who is going to do these things. If it were to describe these things in ways that we're having this great buildup, this rhetorical buildup to say, look, this is, this is really going to be something. You got to get ready for this. You know, you just, I know it's going to be hard to believe. It's just a matter of fact. This is God we're talking about. And if he says, go to Pharaoh And I'm going to deliver my people. Guess what's going to happen? It's just going to happen like that. If he says, you're going to have a son, and his name should be John, and he will be a prophet, and he will turn the people back to their God, he will be filled with with the Holy Spirit from birth. Guess what? That's exactly what's going to happen. There's no need to make some big case for this. This is the voice of God himself speaking. I don't need to explain myself any further to you about this. I am. I am who I am. 
And I love the way Luke captures this for us. This is what's going to happen. In the midst of all of these competing ideologies, these competing religious influences, everyone competing for power and authority and influence, all of it to one degree or another, whether, whether out of true and genuine conviction or whether out of just manipulative intent to control people, all of it with some reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were these people operating. And yet, here's this amazing account in Luke chapter 1 where the angel appears and says, you're going to have a son. I know. It's a, you've been praying for it for a long time. I know you're advanced in years. I know your wife has been barren, but this will happen. And this is what you name him. And this is what he will do. Now you go further and you see, when you, talk, when you, when you think about this other principle of how there is, God is persistently patient uh, in, in his faithfulness, he's persistently patient and faithful in accomplishing his purposes, even in the face of our lack of faith. Further down in the account, how does Zechariah respond? Right, he, asks, he, he, needs, he needs more confirmation. He, he, needs more, he needs more input. Now, what, what has happened? He's talking to an angel. And here he is asking, how can this be? Can you give me a little more? I need, I need just a, a, a little more clarification. Can you give me a sign? Can you give me something to go on? And what ends up happening to him? He's struck dumb. His his lack of faith does not diminish the plan or purpose of God. And I love this too because it does not result in him no longer being a useful vessel for God in this regard. Over and over again, as you you go back to the, the Exodus account, you look throughout the pages of history, you look at this Advent passage and what you see is you see that God intervenes in history, and he intervenes in this convergence of what is completely common. The priest doing his normal duty on a normal day at the temple, and he gets his, his straw pulled, and he gets to go in and burn incense, but it's just part of the normal course, and then this happens. And the way it's described is just matter of fact. This is what God has said. This is what God will do. Let's go. Same thing with the conversation with Moses, tending sheep, moving sheep from one place to the next, and then God shows up and says, by the way, I need you to go to your taskmaster, your ruler, your leader, the one who could execute you on the spot and say, let my people go. And if the people squabble about this, just tell them I am sent you. That's all you need to tell them. That's it. And even in the face of that, what do we know happens with the people of Israel if you go back to that time? What is it happening to them? After God demonstrates his power, what do they do? And, and how do they grumble? What, what is the most stunning confession that they make? And we should have just stayed there in Egypt under slavery. So you see this persistent demonstration of God's amazing 
patience and faithfulness. Faithfulness to his people and faithfulness to his own sovereign purposes and plan to carry it out according to his desire and wisdom. On display. And you see it powerfully in this Advent passage as well. Amazing. Uh, There's a song that you probably have heard this time of year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. How's it go? There are parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and carolers out in the snow or something. There are scary ghost stories and tales of the glories, tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of year. The challenge for us this time of year is that we can get caught up in some of these sentimental longings for the Christmas season. And we can even look back on the Advent passage in Luke or Luke chapter 2 and the telling of the actual Christmas story as it is termed. And we can even view that as tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And we can sentimentalize our way through this time of year. And we can even remind ourselves it's important that we don't miss the reason for the season. Have you thought about that? We have to even put a rhyme with it to make it work, right? And I understand all that. I'm not trying to, to downplay those, those efforts at, at maintaining a level of appropriate devotion and focus. But when you actually look at the record of God's movement and work in history, it is a work that happens in real time with real people, common people, doing common, normal, everyday things. And the nature of his work is stunning. It's indeed miraculous. It's it's something that only God can do in his power. And yet it's characterized by a understated matter-of-factness, likely to keep us from beginning to think that that's what life is all about, is to be lived on some kind of plane of, of either sentimentalism or longing for something more than just trusting in the faithful, persistent work of God to accomplish his purposes amongst common and routinely unfaithful people like you and like me. So when you think about your celebration of Christmas, it is a wonderful time of year. But these are not tales of glories of Christmases long, long ago. This is an account of God himself intervening in history, in, in, in the lives of common, sinful, broken people like you and me, to accomplish a work, a miraculous work of salvation in the most understated of tones so that he is the one that gets glory. He is the one that is honored. He is the one that is worshiped. So I hope that as you move into this next week and begin to prepare for your Christmas celebration, that that your hearts will be full of worship, not for 
reasons of sentimental longings or just an appeal to the colors and lights of the season, which are all wonderful, but that, you, that your, your, your celebration of Christmas will be rooted in the truth of God's work in history to accomplish his purpose of faithfulness, to fulfill his redemptive purposes among his people. Any final thoughts or questions? I, I saw something on Facebook of all places a few weeks ago that completely put words to what I've been trying to um, do in our home for Christmas, and it was a challenge to parents, and it, they said, you know, when your children think of Christmas, do you want them longing for lights and sweets and snowmen, or do you want them longing for Jesus? And then they summed it up, and they said, don't make Christmas magical, make it holy. Mm. And, like, that just, that has just stuck with me and it's kind of become my, it just summed up what I've been trying to, to do in our home. And, but I love that. Don't make it magical, make it holy. It's good. It's good. And, of course, there's a balance here. I mean, please, please, I hope, I hope my wife isn't hearing me say I don't want any sweets or good food at Christmas time. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but it's what you're longing for. That yeah, longing. that's right. That's right. That's right. We can celebrate and we can enjoy all the festive elements of this season um, and still have it be rooted in, rooted soundly and deeply in truth. And that would, that would make it all the more rich and powerful. So. You know, there's a, there's a common theme that runs throughout the redemption story in the Bible. It's that <clears throat> God uses contrast of our weakness and his strength to show that he's in it. He selects Moses. Moses says, who am I? God answers, telling, <clears throat> telling Moses who he is. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, nothing, it's not about Moses. Mm-hmm. Finally, Moses complains, well, I'm slow of speech and my tongue is weak. And God says, who, who do you think made your tongue? Yeah. Do you think I made a mistake picking you or when I made you? Mm-hmm. No. And let's do the same thing with, you know, uh, John, um, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, her husband, mm-hmm. the priest. Mm-hmm. You know, they were barren for a long time because God was in that. Mm-hmm. Because He wanted to use, make this a miraculous moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, when He complained, well, how how am I to know this? You know, okay, I'll give you a sign. Mm-hmm. But you know, the greatest though is that when they were expecting in Israel this Messiah, this big conquering king to come in, you know, on a white horse. And he will come on a white horse one day, but mm-hmm. instead they got a, you know, a carpenter's mm-hmm. baby born in a stable. Right. The whole, the whole account is reflective of that, right? I mean, the whole, it's just, it's, it's a common, uh, clear purpose of God to demonstrate that exactly what you're describing even through the, the birth and ministry of Christ himself so it's great all right well let's pray oh sorry No pressure. <laughs> you, know, they, they, you know, we need to take it, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. God gives word to us. Yeah. It's easy to want more, some sort of proof. Yeah. Right? It doesn't 
not going to receive the angel Gabriel into, into our midst to, to proclaim his word, but God does proclaim his word. Yeah, yeah. It's good. All right. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.